It's just a prayer of confession. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us humbly confess our sins unto Almighty God. If I could have you pray with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. I pray this over you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Please be seated. This is the kind of evening where we are called to do very difficult things. And as we prepare for this journey that we're about to begin today through this season called Lent, I would like to direct our attention to the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bibles or your phones or your tablets or you'd like to follow along, whether you're here in person or joining us online, this is probably one of the more well-known passages of Scripture. It has influenced Western culture perhaps more than any other Scripture, except the Ten Commandments, perhaps. It is um, cited by believers and non-believers alike for its influence in how we understand the world. Over the next couple of weeks as we begin this series in our Lenten uh, 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 devotions, uh, Pastor Joe and I will be focusing on the Beatitudes, following along with Kyle Eidelman's book. Kyle is the teaching pastor at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the largest churches in the nation. And he's also the author of the book, Not a Fan, if you remember that book from several years ago. Uh, Beginning this Sunday, we'll actually have copies of that book available if you'd like to read along uh, as we go through this series. And so in many ways, you're here tonight, and we're beginning the series tonight. So I don't know, folks that aren't here tonight, I, they just have to catch up some other time. God loves you more. So and that, that, that's not true, by the way. But <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds... 
he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and understanding to it. Amen. You know, sometimes the teachings of Jesus are really hard to understand. So at least we got that out of the way, right? Sometimes the things that the church has done for 2,000 years are hard to understand. Now that we have that settled too, I suppose, we can go on. Today is Ash Wednesday. Today starts what is called in the church the holy season of Lent, which is in the Western church is 40 days not counting Sundays. So here's a little uh, inside information. If any of you have given up chocolate for Lent, you technically can have chocolate on Sundays. The word Lent isn't uh, really referring to the things that most of us think of. You know, it's not in your dryer filter. It's not the Lent we're talking about. Lent is actually from an old English word, Lenten, L-E-N-T-E-N, which means lengthen. And the reason it got its name is because it occurred when the days started to lengthen. That is, spring started to come. That's how it got its name. And it is the prelude to what is the, the most important holiday of the Christian year, and that's Resurrection Sunday. I know as much as we want it to be Christmas, Christmas actually is like fourth, but don't tell your kids that. And so, but Resurrection Sunday, commonly called Easter, I, I will call it Easter when, when I have to. That's actually another sermon entirely. But Resurrection Sunday, the full name of it from the earliest days of the church, within the first couple of decades of the church, was the feast day of the resurrection. Feast day, because you've just been fasting all of Lent, so it was a feast day. You may have probably wondered why Easter moves around so much in our modern calendars. We never really know where it's going to fall. Well, except for those of you who track it, which if you do, you're weird. But anyway... Resurrection Sunday or Easter is always on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. So you can make a quick note of that, and the next time you're at a party and they play Trivial Pursuit, you'll have that answer. Now, I know it sounds weird, and a lot of people who are not believers say, well, what on earth, why are we following moon calendars and vernal equinoxes? Well, we do it anyway. We just don't realize that we do it. Because the seasons change based on where the earth is around its annual trip around the sun. And the moon's uh, phases govern our months, so it's not anything weird. And frankly, before we had cell phones and pocket calendars, the way the ancient people kept time was by looking at how the earth tilted and when the moon rose and sat and all those sorts of things. And so it wasn't weird in the ancient world to designate a holiday according to that method. Now, the church, after it designated Resurrection Sunday for a particular Sunday, it counted backwards 40 days, and that was Ash Wednesday because it always fall, falls on a Wednesday. Well, why on earth 40 days? Who made that up? Well, that's in the Bible too. 
It's really important that most of the things the church does is in the Bible. And in the Bible, 40 is a real important number. In Joshua chapter 5, verses, uh, verse 6, we read that the Israelites wandered in the desert. How many, how many years? 40. We remember the time of testing when Jesus went, went into the wilderness before the, before the devil came and tested him. How long was he in the wilderness? 40 days. Noah's ark floated on the floodwaters in Genesis chapter 8, verse 6. How many days? Do you really know that, or are you just going along with everybody else says? <laughs> Moses was on Mount Sinai how many days? You, you can keep doing that. That was fine, because I'm, I'm, I'm not going to trick you up. Moses was on the Mount Sinai 40 days. Actually, he was on this is the mountain 40 days twice on two separate occasions, receiving God's laws. Everybody likes to talk about Jonah preaching to the people of Nineveh. You know how many days Jonah preached? 40 days. He only did one line, repent, repent. For 40 days, he said that over and over and over again. I probably should pick that as a style of preaching, shouldn't I? Now, for a lot of people, this is a really tough season. And we modern Americans, we're really good at reflecting, but we're not really good at self-reflecting. By that, I mean, we're really good at figuring out why problems happen and whose fault is it? Somebody else's fault, right? We're really, we're not, really not wired very well to look at ourselves. And that's one of the reasons Lent is here, is for us to look at ourselves. Today, Ash Wednesday, is the beginning of this season of Lent to look at ourselves. And we're going to do something else that's kind of strange. We're going to take some ashes, which were gotten from last year's palms from Palm Sunday. Actually, we got them from a church supply company, but let's just go with my uh, more holy designation. Because the palms are the things that we raised in celebration. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then seven days later, what do we do? Crucify him. So the palms are a symbol of our rebellion, of our short-sightedness, of, of, of our inability to be able to take a stand and hold a stand. We're wishy-washy as human beings. And so we burn those and we turn them into ashes and we put them on the forehead the following day. Why do we do that? People say, well, that sounds Roman Catholic. It's actually not Roman Catholic. It's Jewish, if you want to get specific about it, because it's in the Exactly. In the Old Testament, it is time and time again. As a matter of fact, there's over 50 references in the Bible about using ashes as a public sign of our repentance. It's a way of showing humility to God. I mean, but who really wants to walk around with black smudges on our heads all day long? That's why we do this at night, because we figure if it was in the morning, you wouldn't come. In the book of Job, chapter 2, verse 8, Job sits in sackcloth and ashes Isaiah the prophet calls us to repent in sackcloth and? As a matter of fact, sackcloth and ashes have been a, time, a sign of repentance. Isaiah says this, however, even as we receive these ashes that I want you to remember as well. It's such a fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself, which is what today is. It is to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable of the Lord? And those are all good things. They're not bad things. But if they're just public shows, they do no good. 
if we haven't rent our hearts, if we haven't opened our hearts to the light of Christ and recognize our need and dependency upon him, Isaiah goes on in verse 6, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness. And those themes we're going to hear over and over and over again in this series as we go through Pastor Eidelman's book. And Kyle asks this very important question that I pray that all of us will consider as we begin this journey. Do we really want what Jesus wants? Do we really want what Jesus is offering? So over the next 40 days, we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes and other scriptures to really wrestle with these teachings of Jesus that seem paradoxical. That, that's Kyle's words, by the way. Things that just don't go together in our world. But in the world of Jesus, in the kingdom of God, they really do go together. Now, I've already read those first few verses from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, known as the Beatitudes. They're also in the Gospel of Luke. We'll look at that as we go through the series as well. But I want to spend just a few more minutes with you this evening on the first beatitude to get us ready to come to this table where we will receive these ashes, where they will be imposed on our forehead as a public sign of our need for repentance and receive the Lord's Supper, His sign to us that we are forgiven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's just stop right there for a second. What on earth does that mean? Well, let me talk to you just a few moments about that word blessed. When we think about the word blessing, we oftentimes think about uh, she really blessed me or he's a blessing. And what does that mean? It, it typically is wrapped up into some kind of good work, right? right? They've done something nice for us or, or they've given us something or we, we might even look at our own life as we try to figure out if we're blessed. And we do that by, by, do we have nice clothes? Do we have a nice car? Do we have an easy life? There are times that that's appropriate. That I, I, I stand in the living room of, of, of where I live, where my family lives. And we look out just last week when it was 15 degrees below zero. And we're blessed. We have a warm house. Well, the word blessed here really doesn't mean any of that, though. And even though that's good and there's nothing wrong with it, and I pray that you'll look at your life and see the blessings that God has given you, that's not what Jesus is talking about when he says blessed are. That word blessed actually carries this idea, a happiness of receiving something that you didn't expect and didn't earn. That's what, is, that's what makes it blessed. L like a gift. 
Getting it? Kinda. We translate it blessed only because probably the best way to think about it is happy is the one who has received these things. English is a terrible language, though. I, I, I hate English. It's, I mean, you know, I love my wife. I love hot dogs. Come on. I mean, you know, there are different kinds of loves, but we just have to pick context or voice inflection. Other languages aren't that slovenly. They're not that sloppy, but English is. So we have to really think about this when we translate these words from the original language of Greek, which is very specific to English. This word blessed really has more, significantly more, to do than just feelings. And, and my goodness, are we not a feeling culture? Nothing wrong with feelings. Don't go here and say, well, pastor doesn't like feelings. No. But there's something deeper. People are always looking for the blessings of following Jesus. John, the revelator, who was, they, 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 they tried to martyr him by boiling him in oil. I'm, I'm sure he didn't feel real blessed. Peter, the apostle, was crucified on an upside-down cross. I'm sure he didn't feel real happy about that. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. It took him three days to die, and the entire time he was preaching the gospel to the Roman centurions who were trying to kill him. So when we say blessed, we mean more than just a feeling. But what do we really believe don't most of us think that we deserve some sort of blessing? I mean, most of us, if we were just having a cup of coffee somewhere, we'd say, you know, I'm, not a, I'm basically a good person. I didn't kill anyone today. By the way, that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> I might have thought about it, but I didn't do it. Don't we often, don't, don't we often think that regardless of what we do, we always deserve something because... We always gauge our motivations, don't we? Now, we may not do it with other people. We not, I, I know that person didn't mean to hurt me, but they did, so shame on them. But when we do something, we say, well, I didn't mean to hurt you, so you shouldn't be mad at me. If the standard for salvation is perfection, which incidentally, it is. Hang with me for the rest of the message. If you are not living a perfect life, it is impossible for you to be saved by your own works. If, Isaiah, if as Isaiah said earlier, is to ensure that the hungry are fed, the homeless, the poor are all given dignity, then we're good. If you're going to head down to downtown Denver, gather up all the homeless folks and bring them to your house... Unless you do that, you've missed what Isaiah is saying. Watch, one of you is going to go do that now just to prove me wrong, right? But see, the point isn't that you need to be working harder to deserve God's grace. The point is, is we cannot do it. Even at our best, we fall far short of the perfection of who Jesus Christ is. And if we're honest with, with ourselves, most of the time, we don't even want to live to the perfection of Christ. 
We've rationalized it. We've made excuses for our failures. We've made excuses for our anger. They deserve it. They caused it. It's a holy rage. It's a holy anger. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of that, in the midst of this season of self-reflection, we're being called and told that there is a blessing that begins to set the tone. And what Jesus is saying here, he leads with that word, blessed. And what he's saying is, is I'm about to give you something. You need to pay attention. I'm about to give you something you don't deserve. We call that mercy. Remember, grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What, or, or, or maybe more specifically, who is the poor in spirit? Are you ready? The poor in spirit are the folks who have absolutely nothing to give to God. No spiritual strength, no gifts worthy of your own crown. Now tonight, a lot of preachers are going to talk about how this really means humility, and that's not true. What's humility? Humility is giving something, but not being so arrogant that you expect congratulations. But it's still rooted in that you've done something, right? That's what humility is. Humility means you're, really, you're actually pretty good, but you don't necessarily need a lot of adulation for it. That's not what this poor in spirit is. This poor in spirit means you are bankrupt. It means I am broke, which incidentally is the root word for broken. Another way of how we talk about our sin before Christ. Poor in spirit is bankruptcy. It is nothing. It is nada. It is zip. You and I bring nothing to the table. We just got to let that sit for a second. That's uncomfortable. We don't like that. So here we are. Happy are those of us, those of us who are about to receive a gift that we didn't earn, those of us who are broke, we might say broken. That's the law, by the way. You and I bring nothing. We are guilty. We are rebellious. We are sinful. We are broken. And here's the issue. The issue isn't that you have to go and work yourself so that you're not broken. It's not that you need to go fix yourself before you come to Christ. It's not that you need to be better at living the life of faith, although we pray that through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that does happen. What we're calling you to, what the Scriptures are calling us to, what Jesus is calling us to, is, is that we have nothing. And He has everything. When we come to Christ tonight and receive these ashes and receive this loaf and this cup, we are saying to him, I got nothing. I'm broken. I'm broken. And Jesus says, 
when you finally figure that out, that's when I can pour into you my spirit. That's when I can heal you. That's when I can redeem you. But as long as you wrestle against me, thinking that somehow you're going to do the work, you can't receive what I'm about to give you. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, being broke is hard. I mean, my first church paid me $18,000 a year. I didn't know what I was going to do with all that kind of money until I went to the grocery store. I asked one of my family members, I said, how do you pay your bills when you're this broke? He says, I just write everybody a check and whoever gets to the bank first gets the money. <laughs> Man, it's hard being broke. But it takes courage to come and receive these ashes, to say to Christ, I got nothing. What happens next? Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, you heard that right. So folks who have nothing get everything? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Well, that ain't fair. I know. Isn't that awesome? The salvation's not fair. And that's the point. Maybe the reason that it seems unfair is because we might not have come to grips with the whole poor in the spirit thing yet. You see, that isn't just the guy on the street corner. That's not just the felon in prison. That's not just the drug user. That's not just the guy down the street. It's all of us. It's every single one of us. When we come to this table tonight, and Pastor Joe and I place those ashes on your foreheads, we're going to say this phrase to you. From dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. And in that courage to be vulnerable, in that courage to say, I've been trying it my way, and it's not working. And Jesus says, do you surrender? Do you give up? Now let me give you the victory.